It's time for Decal Download, your source for news and information from the Georgia Department of Early Care and Learning. We'll hear from Commissioner Amy M. Jacobs and special guests to give you an update on all things Decal. This is Decal Download. Downloading now. When you hear the name Coy Bulge, your first thought is probably music. He is, after all, lead guitarist for the immensely popular and Grammy Award-winning Zac Brown Band. But here at Decal, we also think of Coy as the author of children's books and a member of the board of directors of our own Georgia Foundation for Early Care and Learning. He also teaches music at Kennesaw State University. And Commissioner, I know you're a big fan for all these reasons and more. I am personally a big fan of Koi Bowles, and um, he's become a really big, a great partner with DECAL, and it's really been fun getting to work with him, and I hope we continue to get to work with him yes, over the next come on. many years. <laughs> That's right. Here an amen in the, in the room. Koi joins us on the podcast after just speaking to more than 700 employees at an all-staff meeting here at the Georgia International Convention Center. We are here in the green room. I didn't know there was a green room. I know, it's special. At the convention center. Coy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. This is a nice green room, by the way. Is I've been nice? in green rooms a lot in my life, and this is <laughs> a superior green room. That's good to know, because we've never yeah. been in a green room before, so we don't have any, or I don't they have any. They get a lot else. worse than this. <laughs> now, here's my question about green rooms, and you've been all around the world. Why are green rooms hardly ever green? I have no idea as to why they considered it. Why and why did the name? You know? Why it's termed the green room? Yeah, I do know that the Van Halen story about uh, them having only a certain color M and M's. It got passed on as them being kind of high maintenance, and this like you know I guess I don't even know what the word would be like bougie kind of yeah. you know extravagant you know ask or whatever. But it actually comes from the tour manager to where when he walks into a room and he goes and looks at the M&M jar and if there's only one specific color of green or you know certain color M&Ms that he asked for in there that means that the smallest detail got done so he doesn't need to check on everything else that the band oh. asked for so it's, so it's actually a really ingenious idea from the band's uh, tour manager I love that story instead it makes the band look, look like, like they're, they're like, high, maintenance. high maintenance or yeah. something but do you ever reality. have a special request since we're on the green room talk yeah we uh <laughs> in our green room we put hot wheels on there <laughs> and uh and baseball cards so every every uh time we go to a different venue we go in there and, and like you know four-year-olds or ten-year-olds we open up you know hot wheels and some of the guys in the band have kids too so they gives them something to play with and we also uh open up baseball cards and they're baseball cards from our era because they're still around for some reason so uh you'll see like you know a Dell strawberry rookie card mm -hmm. or something like that so it's pretty fun interesting oh, great well, Coy is uh, with us here just after speaking to 700 employees and um, did a great job. He did. So, Coy, just for those folks that did not get an opportunity to hear you speak today, talk to a little bit about what your message was for the DECAL employees and what did you want to share with them? What were you thinking about when you were preparing for today? So, uh, the idea got passed along that it was uh, the theme of today's uh, event was uh, superpowers or superheroes. And... Um, I've been really thinking a lot lately about um, the power that I have as being uh, now having a voice from being in such a successful band and uh, what that really means. And that's kind of um, all kind of came to this, what I, what I would almost call like a phoenix moment of where all of this stuff kind of comes together for me uh, in one certain way. But that is, uh, to me, is being grateful for, for, for you know, what you have and also being uh, allowed to be uh, thankful 
uh, for what you have, but also uh, having the ability to tell others that you're thankful for them. I think that's kind of a superpower that goes such a long way uh, that we kind of take for granted, you know, to tell other people how thankful we are for, you know, the, even the small things that they do and how much it means uh, to other people when it's, when it's done. Uh, and my dad is a person who's always been extremely uh, verbal about his appreciation of other people. Like, for example, one of my buddies would drive up in a new truck or something like that, and uh, he would be like, man, I really like your new truck. Um, tell me about it. You know, he's like, well, you know, I've uh, been working hard the last couple of years. I got a bonus, you know, with my job and everything, so I decided to sell my old truck. And he's like, man, I'm really proud of you. You know, you're putting in the work in. You can see it pays off. I like your truck, bud. You know, he's like, take me for a ride in it or something, you know. <laughs> and, and it's this, like, really genuine experience, and you can see when it happens, and it's been happening my entire life, but when my dad does this uh, thing that comes so naturally for him, uh, so genuine that people kind of, they go, wow, this is, their shoulders kind of drop right. and mm -hmm. they, they kind of like loosen up around him. And they're also, they remember how appreciative he was to tell him, you know, like, I'm proud of you, dude. Yeah. You're doing a yeah. good job, you yeah. know? And it doesn't even have to be me or direct. I mean, it's like my friends of friends or right. somebody he met in town who he heard this doing a good job or whatever, you know, so. Kind of one of those, uh, I see you. Yeah, moments, you yeah, know? for sure. Um, you were born and raised in Thomaston, Georgia, and that's mm -hmm. Upson County, uh, a little south of Atlanta, west of Macon. We've heard you say you were raised by, and I love this term, some cool hippies. <laughs> yes. Um, tell us about them. How did that passion uh, for music begin? Uh, when did you begin getting interested maybe in writing as well? Uh, so my parents are definitely, uh, there's a store in Nashville called Two Old Hippies, which is like, dead on for my parents. Uh, <laughs> uh, my dad, when I was born, my dad cut his hair off and like got a dad mustache. And then as soon as I graduated high school, he like grew a beard out and then has long hair again. You know, <laughs> so he like, you know, de-hippied himself from, a, from zero to 18 years old. Um, but yeah, they grew up in a, in a really cool time and place where, um, you know, in the 60s when music was, you know, rock and roll especially was, was booming and, um, you know, being from middle Georgia and near Macon, uh, that music scene, you know, hearing my parents talk about going and seeing Wet Willie or the Almond Brothers play before, you know, at free concerts at, you know, um, at different places and whatnot, you kind of hear these legendary stories about like some of my favorite artists now um, as an adult um, or even back then when I was first learning to play guitar, how about how my parents had this firsthand experience, you know, of being involved in the making music scene so you know the Almond Brothers as a guitarist become kind of like a rite of passage especially mm -hmm. as somebody who grew up right up the road from where they kind of found their their feet in the music industry so um, yeah man growing up in Thomaston was really an interesting experience my parents were, were very uh, into me being creative were very uh, supportive the town in general uh, is not necessarily such a creative environment, you know, per se. A lot of mill workers, a lot of, you know, just kind of uh, blue collar um, people, but um, a lot of really good people, you know, there's nothing against that. But being from being somebody who is creative at a very young age, it was important for my parents, uh, you know, to nurture that and kind of, you know, push me to uh, explore those those avenues. And so, you know, at a very young age, I was, you know, at 11 years old, started playing guitar. By the time I was 12, I was like writing songs, you know. Um, and for some reason, I would listen to music that I liked, but I wanted to be like those guys because MTV was huge back then. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my parents would allow me to watch a certain amount of MTV and <laughs> I would just, 
you know, see Nirvana or Pearl Jam or, or one of these bands on TV, and I would like, I want to do that. But to me, it wasn't playing their songs. It was playing my songs doing what they do. Mm -hmm. So there was a little bit of a shift where everybody else I knew wanted to be like them and play their songs. But to me, it's like, well, if you want to be like them, you have to do what they do, which is write their own music, you know? So, so at a very young age, I've always been interested in kind of like doing my own thing, I guess you would say, mm -hmm. you know? Do you remember your first official song? Yeah, it's called Paradise, and I just actually found the tape. Oh, of the it, tape. Uh, like uh, probably six months ago. And uh, I have it sitting on my studio, like front and center. It's kind of like a reminder. I need to, to transfer it to digital. Yeah. Um, but I had a guy in my hometown who um, heard the, my band play, and he was like the one guy in town who was like a professional musician. He made a living off of playing in bars and traveling around. His name was Bill Stubbs. And he actually um, called me over to his house one day, and me and a couple guys went in, and by, he had a four-track recorder. Mm. So we played to like a drum loop, the drum machine that he had, and then I played and sang guitar. It probably sounds horrible, you know, but it was really cool that, that this guy at a really young age, I mean, I was probably 13, 14 years yeah, old, cool. asked me to come over to his house and took time to record me and a couple of the oh, other guys. You huge, know? huge yeah. impact on you. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for we sure. We definitely want to hear that sometime. Yeah. We need to play that. So I think every musician has their, who was their biggest influence, whether it's a band or another musician. Who were your most influential musicians growing uh, up? I think... Um, Pearl Jam was probably the first band that I ever fell in love with. I remember my mom um, coming home, and she was a big part of my musical life. I, I spent a lot of time with her going back and forth to school. She was the one that picked me up and dropped me off. And uh, as an only child, I spent a lot of time with her. Like, if, if she went shopping, then I went shopping, too, kind of thing, <laughs> you know? So, uh, but uh, she had good taste in music, and, uh, and there was a lot of really cool music in the 80s. Uh, on pop radio, you would have everything from like Bruce Springsteen to like, you know, Phil Collins to Hall and Oates. So, you know, it was all across the board, really. You know, Madonna would be on there, Michael Jackson would be on there, Stevie Wonder. That was pop music. It, you know, um, it was a wide range of different styles that were considered to be, you know, top 40 back then. So, um, but this song came out, Pearl Jam Alive came out, and my mom comes home and was like, you got to hear this dude's voice. I can't, I, like, I, I can't explain to you how amazing this song is, and you got to hear this guy's voice. So one day on the way to school, like three or four days later, the song comes on, and I remember hearing the guitar riff and thinking, like, wow, that's cool. And I was like, turn it up, turn it up. And then we just sat there completely silent, you know, with me listening to that song for the first time. And after that, I was like, I have to go get this CD. So I saved up some money and went and got the CD, and I probably, you know, since then – ruined the CD from playing it, you know, probably four times in my life, you know, over, you know, from the time I was probably 11 or 12 to 20-something years old when CDs kind of ran out of style. But <laughs> Pearl Jam was the, was the first kind of profound effect. And then after that, the I kind of got into the whole Seattle scene that was breaking over from Nirvana and Soundgarden and those guys. Uh, and then uh, I started diving back into, like, the music that my parents were listening to, which would be the Almond Brothers and that kind of led down to a, uh, a path of the blues, which turned into listening to B.B. King and Albert King and Stevie Ray Vaughan. And then that turned into uh, listening to jazz. And so I, um, I ended up getting really into Miles Davis and John Coltrane and a lot of the really you know, more famous jazz musicians. And then that turned into me going to school for music wow. at Georgia State later on. Wow. So 
And you were a graduate of Georgia State. Yeah, I graduated uh, with a degree in music in 2004 from wow. Georgia State. That's great. Uh, commuted from Thomaston, or did you come up here and live in Atlanta? It was an interesting. Uh, I was about to graduate with a biology degree. Um, I dreadfully had that phone call with my mom like six months before I was about to graduate, and I was like, I think I want to quit school. Oh, no. And my parents, knowing that I wasn't like, uh, you know, lazy or a party or anything like that, they basically said, okay, what do you want to do? And I was like, I think I want to go to school for music. And my mom's like, okay, well, you got to find out how to make a living off of music. And so I started taking guitar lessons at Georgia State by the instructor who was teaching there privately. So I would drive all the way up to Atlanta once a week, take an hour lesson with this guy, and then go back home and practice the whole time. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, I had to collect phone numbers from him from musicians and then go back home and cold call them <laughs> from my house and be like, hey, I'm studying with Dave Frackenpole. He gave me your number. Um, uh, my mom is making me call people and ask them <laughs> how to make a living off of music. Can you please tell me how you make a living? And they were like, first off, your mom's really cool. <laughs> yeah, you know, at the, at the, and that was kind of the icebreakers that every single person thought that was a cool thing for a mom to do. Uh, whereas I was like, this is the end of my life. Man, you know? um, but um, yeah, so I ended up uh, going to school for music, which is really interesting because I'm such a big advocacy for literacy uh, is one of you know my main uh, points of focus right now, um, and specifically at a young age. And uh, I had a moment in my life where I was illiterate. Like I did not learn know how to read music going into school for music. So uh, I kind of can understand uh, like the the fear and the insecurities that come along with trying to. I mean, because music is basically like a different language, you know. Mm -hmm. So. Um, you know, I would be in class and not in, in, in a room with saxophone players who've been reading, you know, music lightning fast since they were in eighth grade. And here I am, you know, 20 something years old and can't read at all, really. You know, so it was a, uh, a, a big learning curve for me. But, you know, um, where there's a will, there's a way. You know? right. So I put my head down, I held it on and practiced reading every day and got better at it. You know, that's fantastic. When we think about you as a songwriter and then when we think about you as an author, um, I, I got to wonder, which is more challenging, writing a song or writing a book? They both have their challenges in, in, in each different way. I think um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say I could compare the two um, and which one would be harder. Um, you know, with a, with a song, there's the idea that you can write great words and not such a good melody and not have a great song. Or you can have a you know a great melody and decent words and still kind of have an okay song. Mm -hmm. So you know the melody part of it is such a, a big thing. But then again, writing uh, books for children in a way that has kind of a, the books that I write generally have like a rhyme structure to them. So making sure that the cadence kind of has this flow to it, but also you know knowing your audience and writing a book that has images of animals that they know and colors that they know. And thing, things of that nature. So I, I can definitely say this, that I wouldn't be able to write children's books if it hadn't been for spending mm -hmm. so much time studying how to write songs. Mm -hmm. you know? So you had your own band and solo career before joining the Zac Brown Band in 2007. You continue to have your own band and mm -hmm. your own solo work. Tell us a little bit about that. And is it true, is the rumor true, <laughs> that they needed a keyboardist at the time and you went for it and you did not know how to play keyboard? Yeah, so uh, <laughs> I started with me getting out of school for music and wanting to be a jazz guitarist. And I would, you know, had these gigs where I was playing in the corner of a restaurant for like $50 a night and free food. And that, and that was my life. And I was really actually happy about it. But then I 
kind of kept wanting to become more of an artist and um, and and write my own stuff and um, that isn't necessarily what that environment wanted right. so I kind of decided to switch gears and not make a living off of playing music but let m music be kind of my you know religion I guess you would say you know something that was not really a hobby because it was more important than that but I decided that I didn't want anybody to be in control of like how I played music so I stopped doing cover songs I stopped and I only did original music and I went back to uh, teaching guitar lessons and doing construction work uh, and then afterwards that's when I put you know my my own band together Koi Bowls and the Fellowship and the the idea of that band was we wanted to be the band that where if we opened up for you then you were, it was going to be a bad day in your world because we were going to try to sound better than you sounded. You know? <laughs> so uh, we had a rule that you couldn't uh, you couldn't be in the band unless you were willing to practice two days a week. And so we practiced all the time and got really good really fast because all the guys that were in the band were also guys that I was going to school at Georgia State with. And then we kind of created a buzz around Atlanta of this band that's you know basically opening up for people and you know doing kind of like a headliner slot, if you will. And then so uh, I got a call um, from, uh, or I called um, one of Zach's buddies and was like, hey man, if you can get in touch with him, because Zach and I went to school in, at West Georgia College where I was studying biology and knew each other in that scene. And so I called and said, man, I'd love to open up for you guys if you get a chance. And so Zach called back and said, cool, uh, we're playing uh, at the Sky Bar in Auburn, Alabama. You should come and open up for us. So we drove all the way to Auburn, Alabama, opened up for the Zach Brown Band, had a great night. And then a couple of weeks later, I get a phone call and it's Zach and he says, if you, uh, if you can, I'd love for your band to open up for us on every show. And I was like, wow, that'd be amazing. You know, and I'm just kind of like my arm here standing up. I'm like, wow, this is amazing. Like we're about to be like a real, real deal band. And he's like, and since you play keys, you should leave your keys on stage and uh, and when when you guys play, just leave it up there and then come play with us. And so it was like this Dewey Cox moment where I was like, OK, so you're saying <laughs> I'm going to play with my band and then I'm going to play keys with your band, too. You know, and he was like, yeah. And then I just remember uh, I didn't play keys really at the time. I just drug a keyboard around with me and would write songs on them and play them with my band. And it looked like I knew how to play keys, but oh, wow. I really didn't know how to play that well. So um, I just fake it until you make it. And I basically kind of looked at my phone in this odd way, like, am I about to, like, you know, just drown myself by telling this guy that I can't play keys or am I going to lie to him? So I basically said, sure, man, sounds great. Um, <laughs> I'll do it. And then uh, all I did was practice. So, I mean, I guess there was like a leap of faith there that I knew that um, I could get my keyboard skills up to par with being able to play in a band if uh, – if I practiced all the time. So the next like three years of my life was basically sitting at a keyboard, Practicing. you know. I love that I attitude. Love and I guess the advice there for our listeners is if you're applying for a job, even if you don't know how just, to do it, just lie about just it. Just work hard. Fake it till you make it. I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry, don't lie. Get yeah. in there. Right, exactly. Get in there and just do it. Um, you've given us some great characters through your books, Will Powers, Amy Giggles. You have a picture book for when you're feeling sick which I think is a great That's idea. So and, and then as part of the 25th birthday of George's pre-K program, you wrote a book called What's Behind the Little Red Door. Tell us about the concept for it, how that all came about. Yeah, it's really interesting because um, when I first talked to uh, you guys about doing the book together, um, you know, I, I was just telling the story to the to people inside about how I kept envisioning, you know, 80,000 kids <laughs> 
and me being on stage and them just all talking to me like, if I could just please have your attention and just ask you a couple questions like, what would you guys like for me to write a book about, you know? Uh, and so was, for the first time in my life, I kind of got creative block. Um, but then I kind of kept going back to, okay, I have this big chance to write a, a really amazing book uh, and have a lot of influence on at least 80,000 kids or more. So what do I really want to say? And um, I didn't want it to be like a preachy book or anything like that, like learn this lesson. But if anything, it was kind of like a lesson. My dad's always been a really good teacher in the sense that, and my mother has as well, but my dad's the classic case of like, if he's teaching me how to fish, it's like, he, he does it a couple of times. He shows me how to do it a couple of times. He lets me do it on my own and fail a couple of times. I ask for help. He shows me how to do it again. And within like an hour or so, I'm kind of like doing it on my own, you know, ever so slightly and then get better at it. So, uh, and I started thinking about that concept of uh, how I wanted to teach people how to be creative. So the number one thing that I found in my travels, you know, with doing what I've done and all the successful people that I've met is that everybody that I've met, whether it's they are, you know, um, a millionaire who owns their own like food franchise or they're a songwriter or whatever it is, they're all creative. And it's not just necessarily with the arts in general, but they know how to you know, like create a world that they or an environment in which they live in and they know how to create a solution to the problem. So, uh, and they use their creative mind to get in and out of these different business uh, ideas. So the idea was to teach kids how to be creative. And so what, what more than that is asking them a question, what's behind this thing? It could be anything. So by asking them a question, what's behind the little red door, they initially, can, it can be anything that they want it to, can be, to be. And then you kind of, push them along through the book and guide them along to these different worlds and whatnot. And it came from uh, my great aunt had a house that she built and she was in love with her grandchildren and she built her a room and put all of this like large furniture in it. And then she dropped the room um, and then put a very small door for her grandchildren to get into. And I would go over there as a, as a kid and open up the small door and we would get on our knees and climb through it and then pop up into this big room with all this like adult furniture in it. and I was just like, this is amazing. <laughs> so that's where the idea came from, uh, like what's behind the little red door is the idea of that experience with my, my great aunt. And we actually ended up naming our daughter Millie uh, after her as well. So oh, she had so a pretty sweet. profound effect on our, our, um, our lives as kids and also kind of ongoing, you know? I love that story. Yeah, I love really that cool. behind the little red door has a true story from yeah, your child. Yeah, cool. there was a little red door. There was a door. little red door. Yeah. yeah, I love that. So there's a cookbook out there called Southern Ground. Did you have any involvement with that? Yeah, Zach had this idea of doing a cookbook and put a lot of time and energy into it. And we would bounce ideas off each other about it. And he re- really wanted to kind of be a new expansive idea on a cookbook. And it had... Uh, like these uh, notebook cards that slid down in these slots that you would actually take to the grocery store with you to get all of the recipes. So like the recipe cards were like in these like sleeves inside the book. And so um, and it, the, the book kind of stalled a little bit. A lot of stuff kind of got put in, in front of it. And I, I basically approached him and was like, man, this book is really amazing. And you've already got all the recipes together. The one thing that we don't really have together is just the stories and a couple other things from the book. Like, do you mind if I kind of quarterback this thing, you know, the rest of the way, since you've basically done all the majority of the legwork, it just needs a couple of, you know, uh, things here and there. And he was like, yeah, that'd be great, man. And it was, so it was an adventure for me to get involved in being a part of making a book and, uh, and whatnot. But so I wrote a couple of stories for it, worked with a guy 
who was um, who we actually ended up using uh, with the behind the little red door. He and I, this guy named Tom Bledsoe, worked on this um, um, that cookbook together, and I learned the ins and outs of like you know uh, page structure, printing, you know all these different things that come along with self-publishing and whatnot. So. Um, and then I wrote some really cool stories that ended up making it in there and whatnot. And that was a, it was a big uh, learning experience for me, and it actually ended up turning out to be a, a really successful book uh, and kind of launched Zach off into being like a true foodie, hmm. you know, because he's, he's an amazing chef and really knows his stuff when it comes to food. This is not just food you guys eat on the road when you're traveling no, on no, a bus yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, Coy has a blog. Do you still write your blog? I did not blog? know he had a blog. It's I had a blog, and I write. I wrote in it for quite a while, and it was kind of my way. And it's actually how a lot of the books kind of got started. Mm-hmm. I was writing this blog, and then it would transform into me writing short stories that wouldn't be necessarily considered blog material. But uh, every now and then, something will hit me, um, and I'll you know kind of use um, you know uh, the, this, the blogging uh, method to kind of portray a message that I've uh, been given. But lately, I've been doing stuff like I did today, which is like speaking in front of people. And so um, you kind of get the same, I get to do the same thing with, you know, like the message today was about being grateful and about being able to thank other people that was around you. You know, that's kind of like all of our superpowers that we have inside of us. Is everybody has the ability to tell somebody else that they're thankful for them and how positive of an um, event that can actually be. And so... Um, instead of writing a blog about that, you know, per se these days, it would be something that I would talk about in a speech. You know? Right. And so impactful because it's not necessarily the first thing you would think of. My college degree is in whatever, you know, yeah. my work experience is this. Everybody has the superpower of just recognizing the people around you and saying sure. thanks. Mm-hmm. That, that kind of stuff goes a long way, yeah, though. I think uh, people really like being thanked, and I think people really like being acknowledged. Mm-hmm. And in the world that we live in, um, you know, there's so much um, reality versus, uh, like, for Instagram, for example, you know, like how people portray themselves on Instagram versus how their real lives are. Right. You know, you kind of get this famed version of everybody's lives. and Through uh, a filter. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, and so uh, it's interesting. I started hanging out with a lot of people who are in the health industry uh, recently, and they're insanely positive people. And a couple of these people are really highly respected in the health industry and they have this magnetic power uh, and it's all about being um, pushing people to be their better selves and also pushing people to be their higher self, but also being very grateful and thankful for everybody around them. So I started kind of getting hip to um, that idea along with my father kind of, you know, being that guy my entire life and it's became this kind of new uh you know entity in my life has been you know very vocal about the people that i'm around whether it's my wife or my mom and dad or you know just stopping and taking the time to say thanks wow you're really making my life easier or that was really cool of you to do that you know Mm -hmm. it goes a long way you know i i know i i I just recently did uh, a children's cd uh that goes along with um, the behind the little red door um, and it's a 10 song CD. I probably put more work into this CD than I have just about any other project that I've ever done. Mm. We recorded it at my house and me and my uh, writing partner, Carlos Sosa, um, wrote and produced all of this music and we engineered it and recorded it all ourselves. And, uh, 
you know, we spent like days and days and days working on this stuff. And he's a workaholic and I am too. So we'd be like 12 hours in on this thing and be like, are you going to go to bed? And he's like, I don't know. Are you going to go to bed? It's like, I might work a little bit more. He's like, well, I am too. And so then it's like, next thing you know, it's like five in the morning and we're just now going to bed. But uh, after the last episode of us working together where we finally completed the album and it was going into the mixing, uh, mixing engineer's hands, he called me and said, man, hey, I just want to let you know how awesome I think you are as a musician and how grateful I am for this experience and how proud I am of it and it was one of those moments where I was like man he really just told me everything that I would want to hear mm. and I didn't ask him to do that you mm -hmm. know and it was just like what an amazing ability from this guy and he's one of my favorite humans in the entire world and I'm really excited about the CD coming out it comes out in uh, November in physical copies and then it'll be a part of this social emotional kit that I'm doing uh, later on uh, that comes out in January. So there's all this really cool stuff that I've been working on for uh, 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 quite a while now that's about to come out. So I'm really excited to see how that fits into, you know, being a part of, um, you know, making a positive impact on everything. But yeah. it was really cool for him to, I told my wife, I was like, it might be, like I literally had tears in my eyes. I was like, you know, I was like, <laughs> from bro to bro, that might be the coolest <laughs> thing he's ever said, you know. I'm a softy just, there, man, yeah. you know. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that he didn't think, here's a guy, he's traveled the world, he's with this hugely successful band. Maybe he doesn't need a compliment, but he got past that. Sure, And just yeah. got to the sheer emotion of, I got something I want to tell you. Yeah, yeah. I, I really <laughs> think that, that that personal connection with people is uh, is invaluable. You know, and I, I don't want to say, I don't want to seem like downtrodden when I say like the world that we live in today, because there's a lot of beautiful stuff going on. But I think that we're at such a fast pace to where some of that stuff can get forgotten, mm -hmm. you know. And if anything, it, does no, it doesn't do anybody any harm, you know. Yeah. Not at all. Completely agree. Changing gears just a little bit, but almost in that same vein of good things happening. Um, tell us a little bit about Camp Southern Ground. And yeah, so Zach has been working on this camp from I, I, literally the first time in like 2007 I went to his house in East Atlanta and he had probably 20 acres they lived on and we wrote songs with each other till about three in the morning and then he walked outside and he's like the pavilion is going to go over here the swimming pool is going to go over here the dining hall is going to go over here and I was like wow he's really serious about this I mean here's this you know up-and-coming musician um, who's got a children's camp that he's building in his mind you know I was like wow that's really interesting and so um, if there's been anything that's caused me to to be um, uh, so active in using my voice, it's been him. He's a very given person and has taught me the power of what giving is about. And uh, as an only child, I would have to say that is uh, re remarkably not inherent mm -hmm. uh, for me as a person. You know, like I write my name inside my jackets on the bus and everybody else in the band has got <laughs> brothers and sisters and <laughs> They were used to everybody stealing their stuff and never getting it back and all this, where I'm like, this jacket says Koi <laughs> because I don't want anybody else oh to wear gosh. it. Like as if I ever had a brother that or sister. That is definitely only child syndrome. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So, um, so it's not something that comes really inherent for me, but Zach has this really amazing uh, gift of like uh, spreading um, a giving, a givingness, I guess you would say. So <clears throat> he was uh, involved in camps at a really young age ended up being a camp counselor and then had it, uh, you know, it was a message sent from a higher power that he was supposed to build this camp. And he's been on it since day one. I mean, it's really, and he, he left that place and moved to another place and the camp was going to go here. He left that place and moved to another place and the camp was going to go here. And eventually he settled in Fayetteville, Georgia 
And then it just ended up where all this land was available around him for him to buy up. And so he started buying up the land, started putting a board of uh, people together. And um, I would go down when, like, they passed the, the, the sewage and drainage system, which uh, Fayette County and Peachtree City and that whole area, their coding is really um, uh, strict, I mm -hmm. guess you would say. You know, they're, they, the community and all that's really involved in what gets done there. And, and so um, I remember the day of going down, and if, like, they didn't get sewage passed and, you know, drainage passed or whatever, then it was just like the camp wasn't going to be able to happen. And so um, they basically approved it, and we're like, everybody's running out high-fiving each other, like, yay, sewage! <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? So um, it's, it's incredible, though. It's like there's this, uh, this university, man. I mean, this, this place is, like, of the highest building structure. I mean, the bathrooms in this place are nicer than the bathrooms I have in my house. <laughs> I mean, when you think of a camp, you think of, like, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and Kool-Aid and right. stuff like that. And all this, all the food is like grown there and it's all farm to table. So the kids wow. go and pick their strawberries that end up going in, you know, in the food that they eat later on. Mm -hmm. And they, and um, yeah, so it's been this thing that he's just done an amazing amount of work on raising the money to be able to make this thing happen. And it's also something that's really powerful and it's, it's, it's exists. It's mm -hmm. happening. Mm -hmm. It's existing. Kids are going to camp and, and when it's not camp season, it's also a retreat for people coming out of the military with their families to f find respite and mm. have uh, groups and training to get them involved in getting like back into uh, society. You right. know, which really helps out a lot. So it's real. You've been there. I have been there. The opportunity. It's like to a visit. university, isn't it's, it? It's amazing. It's like, like when somebody says camp, camp, you yeah. don't think like in a little this spaceship place. conference area. Yeah, yeah I still yeah. want to go back and I've visit. I've seen pictures. And I think yeah. it's sustainable for like a hundred years. Or yeah, something. yeah. Really five hundred. I think it's like one of those kind of things. Yeah, it's like it. it's yeah. going to be basically these buildings and roaches around. You know, when the world ends. So look, look for Camp Southern Ground forever. Yeah, yeah, because it's going to be there. So. I'm, I'm having a hard time believing with everything you do. So you're traveling with the band. You have your own band. You're writing books, uh, writing music, teaching at Kennesaw State University. Yeah. How I, do you fit that in? I started doing that a while back and um, just got asked by Keith Parisi and uh, uh, his partner, Danny uh, House, to, uh, to come in and do it. And I got asked to some music business class and so when I first came in you know my mother was a financial aid director at a university and when I was a kid I had a checking account and I had to pay for everything through my allowance that came in through my checkbook mm. so if I bought uh, baseball cards I had to write like a four dollar and 25 cent check for it you know and it was the most uncool thing ever man but um, it taught me financial responsibility at a very, very, very young age. Mm -hmm. And so basically what I go in and do is, is teach these kids that if you want to have a goal, then there's some money relating to that goal, whether it's buying new studio equipment, moving out to Nashville or L.A. to be a part of a different scene or moving you know, out of your parents' house into Atlanta so you can have your own production you know, facility or whatever it is, um, it's all about reaching these next goals and you have to be aware of your finances. And so we kind of go over uh, like what the ins and outs of finances really are. And we also uh, talk about, you know, how to stay inspired, how to stay focused, how to set up really small goals and achieve them. But I think that I'm probably better at teaching than I am at anything. That's why um, being so involved in the education system in Georgia is so, so, um, so near and dear to me because uh, I've had teachers that had a profound effect on me. Um, I, 
you know, our kids spend so much time with our teachers, mm-hmm. you know, more than we, they do with their parents almost. Mm-hmm. And these teachers put so much into, um, into the kids uh, on a yearly basis. And you realize that they experience them and they change their lives and put their whole heart and everything into them. And then they leave. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's this like a lot of probably grieving that goes along with being a teacher as well. But it's also, um, I think, Teaching is a lot, a lot, being a teacher is a lot like being a musician and it's that you're, it's your calling. You know, you kind of, people will go, well, how did you, why did you decide to be a teacher? And most people will go, because I'm a teacher. I, you know, that's who I am. That's what my calling is. It's kind of, you know, one of those, um, one of those things. So, um, so anyway, back to the Kennesaw thing. I, I really enjoy teaching. It's something that I love getting in a room full of, you know, people and inspiring them to be their best and it's specifically if it's a music related thing it's something that I have spent the last 13 years of my life 13 years of my life traveling around the world um, and learned a lot of different stuff so I have some first-hand knowledge to be able to share with them so it's a really interesting class man mm-hmm. and I always kind of like humor uh, with humor and also a little bit of re- uh, realism say this is just only like job insurance for me to where like if like 30 years from now when you guys break off and are insanely, insanely su- successful, you'll be like, man, remember when he was like so inspiring. What is this guy up to now? He needs a job. Cool. I'll hire him, you know. It's always good to have a backup yeah. plan. Uh, <laughs> you and your wife, Kylie, have two children, Millie, Mercy, and mm-hmm. Hattie. What precious things. How have children changed you? Oh, by the, I mean, that's been the biggest change uh, of my entire life. Uh, I th- <clears throat> it's hard to say. I mean, I, I don't want to uh, um, offend anybody who doesn't have kids, but it's literally you can't really fathom what love is until you have your own kids. You know, it's like, um, and no offense to anybody who doesn't have kids, right. but for me personally, like I thought that I knew what my purpose in life was about. I thought I knew what like loving my wife was about. I thought I knew what loving someone else was about until I had kids. And then it's like everything completely changed. And all of a sudden, you know, and I actually thought that I would have more anxiety and more like be more worried about protecting them and raising them in this environment, have more stress and more responsibility. But it was actually quite the opposite to where as soon as they were born, I immediately was like, you know, no matter what happens, if we're in, if it's us in a ditch, then we got each other, you know what I mean? Like in this ditch to protect us, you know what I mean? So uh, it's been an amazing experience. Uh, Luckily, my girls are very, uh, are are both um, very verbal at a very young age. So my, my, she's about to be three in October, um, in the middle of October. But uh, my first daughter, Hattie, she was full-fledged sentences and everything at like right at two years old so she would come in with this like this little kid with like a toddler with diapers on and be like daddy are we gonna take the jeep or are we gonna take the other car you know and people would like look around like what you know so it was really awesome to get to know her personality through uh her verbal expression at such a young age and uh it's been the best and coolest thing ever, man. Yeah. You know? Kids may actually be the answer to this next question, but through all of this, Zach Brown band, your own band, your writing, uh, how do you stay grounded in the midst of a lot of fame and success? I actually put a lot of time and energy into that. When the band first got started, uh, we went out and did like a 17-week tour of the United States, and about halfway through it, I completely 
fell apart. I had like the, I guess you would call it like a breakdown. I just didn't, I didn't have my feet in any kind of, you know, substantial grounding. Um, I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know where I'd been. I didn't know who I was anymore because who you think you are when you get to bounce around from place to place is one thing. And when you're locked on a bus with 12 other or, you know, 11 other people, you become who you are to them mm-hmm. and that's who you are. You know what I mean? It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what you think you are, who they think you are is who you are. And that, and I'd never had that experience with like brothers or sisters to where like, for example, I'd get up in the middle of the night and look in the fridge and just be like, whose food is this? I don't care. And I'd eat it. And I'd wake up the next day and somebody would be like, dude, you ate my food. And then I became like the guy who didn't care about people's food, right. which was true. But I had to accept that responsibility of that's part of my character and I needed to change that, you know? So anyway, um, about halfway through, I ended up uh, having this call with my dad. I called and said, hey, man, I think I'm going to quit. And he said, uh, okay, well, if, uh, if you want to come back and, you know, live in the small town and uh, work with us, you know, it's 90 degrees outside and I've been mm-hmm. up on, on this hot roof all day long and um, I'll see you tomorrow. And he hung up the phone on me. Wow. My dad's never hung up the phone on me in my entire life. Mm-hmm. And I was just standing there looking around in this parking lot with tears like rolling down mm-hmm. my face. And I looked over at all my friends, like making margaritas next to the pool. Or I could go back home and be on this hot roof. And I was like, maybe I'll just like chill out for a little while and <laughs> like see what happens and settle in. But uh, after we won a Grammy, a lot of stuff started changing where I started having people make kind of weird comments as though like I had changed, you know. Uh, and it just kind of got to where I realized pretty quickly that if I, you know, kept living the life that I was living that I could possibly uh, like regret things and not have experienced time with my family and things of that nature. So right at the, like the peak of our success or, or the beginning of the peak of our success, I decided that I was going to move back to Thomason. I bought a house on a river and I just basically would spend my time off with my mom and dad hmm. fishing and floating the river and hanging out with my buddies that I grew up with, you know, and uh, I didn't want to get swept up into like, you know, when, when we had time off being single and staying out in L.A. for because, I mean, I'd already spent time out there and got to see what it was like and met people. So I was definitely not missing out on experiences, per se. But it was really important to me to make sure that like I when like 15 years had passed and I hadn't seen my parents in 15 years, really. My dad's gotten older. My mom's gotten older. And I don't I didn't get to experience those years with them, you know, so. I kind of decided that I really wanted to stay grounded. And so I, I put a lot of time and energy into making sure that um, that, that, that happens. But with, for me, it's, it's with the kids and with my wife. But uh, staying grounded is also on this, like, pretty serious mission about giving back. Mm-hmm. You know, so creating content and creating products that are, like, new and exciting and creative for schools, um, and which is what I'm working on now, and also doing, you know, having this advocacy where I'm speaking out, um, you know, for teacher appreciation for creativity and literacy in the schools and in the environment and at home and also for early education, you know, and, and my studying all of this stuff is, is something that's a lot of work. I mean, I put a lot of time into it. And ever since I started talking with Commissioner Jacobs and, uh, and Liz and yourself, I've uh, been on this journey of talking with as many people as I can get in front of about what they think is important, you know, with these advocacies that I'm working on. And it's a part of me having this voice to give back um, and making sure that I'm giving back instead of just kind of uh, um, saying that I am and mm. it 
being cool to say that I am. I really want to make sure that I'm doing it and making a dent, you know. Yeah, I'd say you are. I would yeah. say yes. yes. You seem no very doubt. grounded, although yeah. I didn't know you before your fame and fortune. Um, but I'd, I'd say I was the same guy. Okay. I just wasn't it, as busy. It, it seems like it. It seems like it. So any more books in the future? Yeah, well, so uh, I'm working on this product with uh, Lakeshore that's um, basically behind the little red door, and it's a social-emotional kit that will be coming out uh, for classrooms, and it has the CD um, uh, it has a bunch of different uh, exercises. There's a music video that I created for one of the songs. I mean, I poured my entire creative heart and soul in this thing to when you're inside this box, it's about as much creativity <laughs> for kids. There's a puppet that goes along with it to where um, it's like a red door and you can change the faces out on it so you can make it a happy face or a sad face so kids get to understand um, the idea of what... Um, um, social emotional issues are and all of these things so um i'm i put so much time and energy into the cd and in, into the kit to where i'm really excited about it but to answer your question the the next thing for me is to continue the uh behind the little red door series because it has it has so much uh creative potential yeah. and so much uh i guess you would say creative legs mm -hmm. to where um the idea would be able to um what's behind the little red door um you know, outer space version or, you know, uh, and the idea that this door is a portal and can you can go anywhere with it mm -hmm. is going to be really exciting. So the next thing is to create more books based around that character, really, that. you know. Well, and it all happened from you guys. I love yeah. that. It started right here, <laughs> right. yeah, at the Department of Early Care and Learning. Who knew? How can people um, find the books, the music? Where do they need to go? Uh, KoiBowls.com. I just created a company called Koiko. Um, which I needed an umbrella company. So um, uh, that will be how most of everything that I'm uh, going to be doing that involves children or uh, children's uh, or education or anything like that with books and, um, and CDs and whatnot will be uh, in Koiko related or um, um, you can go to koibowls.com and and get it there. What about right. social media? How can we find you? Yeah, so I'm on Instagram on at Koi Bowls, Koi Bowls on Facebook. I think there's a Koi Bowls musician site. Uh, and then Koiko will eventually, Perfect. you know, kind of uh, arrive and start taking over the universe. Perfect. Yeah. yeah. That sounds great. We hope we're a part of that universe. I know, <laughs> for real. You know, it's hard to believe. I was just sitting here thinking. First time we met Koi was at a Read Across Georgia yeah. event uh -huh. at the Capitol when Governor Deal and Mrs. Deal uh, chose one of your books as yeah, the yeah. book for everybody to read. And I remember we all walked back over to the office going, wow, that guy was impressive. <laughs> and now we've had a relationship know, for a couple awesome. of years. And uh, it's, it's No, really I'm very great. grateful, man. This uh, Doing the book with you guys um, uh, with the Georgia Lottery 25th uh, anniversary uh, funding pre-K was such an amazing opportunity for me. Um, and just I still sometimes sit back and try to envision like 80,000 kids <laughs> taking this book home and sharing it. And I have yeah. people yeah. write me all the time that this is my son's favorite book and they'll send me pictures of it or things of that. So the idea that we did such a uh, good job on completing it and it has such a creative uh, and, you know, val and valued educational yeah. purpose uh, and, the, and the idea that it functions well, not only in the classroom, but, in it, but at home with the kids and kids resonate with it. Is something that, I mean, because it's just basically like fingers crossed as an adult, mm -hmm. you hope you connect with them, you know. So um, I'm so grateful for that opportunity and, um, and, and the boost that it had for 
my career. So I'm just trying to, to hustle and keep up with it, man, you know, <laughs> and do great. as much as I can. Well, there's a lot more behind that little red door, so That's stay, right. tuned. stay tuned. KoiBowls.com for more information on all of Koi's music and books uh, out there for you. Great resources. Hey, holidays are coming up soon. Yes, so yes. Go to Ding. the website for more information. <laughs> Koi, thanks so much for, uh, thank thanks for speaking to our team today, yes. and thanks for being part of the podcast. Yes, thank you for having me. Now your questions from the water cooler. Hi, my name is Jose Geronimo from IT, and my question for the commissioner is, I've heard about the children's cabinet. What does it do and who serves on it? Uh, great question, Jose. So the Georgia Children's Cabinet was actually created um, back in 2004 by Governor Perdue. Um, and the first lady at that point, she chaired it and she focused on foster children. And it continued under Governor Deal. Um, and Mrs. Deal chaired it and she focused on a plethora of children's issues. And uh, Governor Kemp has... Um, continued the children's cabinet uh first lady marty kemp is the honorary chair and i'm fortunate to serve as one of the co-chairs um, with joy hawkins on the children's cabinet and it's really um the members are um, members of all state agencies they're state agency heads that have anything to do with children so for example like the department of community health the division of family and children's services the department of education so agency heads and then we also have other partners um like the Georgia Head Start Association, the university system, the technical college system, Voices for Georgia Children. So it's a large group of um, agencies and private nonprofit organizations that focus on children. And it's all about collaboration. How do we all work together um, to make things better for Georgia's children? So I'm excited to help lead that work. And we'll report back when we finish our strategic planning process on what those three to four priorities will be for uh, this Georgia Children's Cabinet. Time for the decal download quiz. Your chance at winning a nice prize. We'll draw one name from all the correct answers to this question. What is Koi Bowles' hometown? What is Koi Bowles' hometown? Email your response to decal download at decal.ga.gov. We can't wait to make you a winner. Thanks for tuning in to Decal Download. For more information, visit our website at decal.ga.gov. The conversation continues on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest. Follow Commissioner Jacobs on Twitter at C-O-M-M Jacobs.